doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. Welcome to Michael Myers Minute, where we delve into the 1978 horror classic Halloween, one minute at a time. I'm your host, Robert Black. Minute 73 begins with Lori still approaching the Wallace house. Second five, just like when she entered her bedroom in minute 27, Lori is preceded by her shadow. Exterior, Wallace house, night. Camera moves up to the front of the Wallace house. On this close-up, the mistaken layout of the Wallace house should be obvious if we haven't noticed it before, or if I hadn't pointed it out before. When Annie goes in and out in minute 54, when Linda and Bob arrive in minute 60, the living room is clearly to the right of the front door. Here, looking at the front of 1537 Orange Grove so close, it should be clear to anyone looking that there is no room to the right of the front door. The interiors, of course, were shot at 1542 Orange Grove. Lori walks up to the front porch. She stands there a moment listening, as if to hear some sound of life from the inside. Second 13, Lori rings the bell, then she knocks. In the script, she knocks on the door and rings the doorbell. She waits. Silence. Lori. Bob. Linda? Second 25, Lori looks back, presumably at the van parked at the curb. She steps off the porch. Lori. Linda. And walks around to the side of the house, camera tracking with her. Lori. Annie? In the script, it says she moves to the garage and peeks inside, and there is Annie's car. Lori thinks a moment, then looks to the street. Lori's POV, Bob's car. Bob's car sits there on the street. We don't get any of that. Because, of course, the garage is a different location. Angle on Lori. She turns and walks through the breezeway between the house and the garage around to the back door. As I mentioned in minute 53, when there was talk of the puzzle that is the Wallace property, Lori's approach here is strange. She circles the left-slash-south side of the house clockwise, but she approaches the open kitchen door from the right-slash-north, as if circling counterclockwise. The kitchen door is ajar, in the script, swinging back and forth in the wind. Lori starts to step through the open doorway, and the minute ends. But let us return to Carol Clover, regarding the final girl. Quote, The final girl looks for the killer, even tracking him to his forest hut or his underground labyrinth, and then at him, therewith bringing him, often for the first time, into our vision as well. End quote. We're getting ahead of ourselves a little here, but the process has begun. Lori doesn't know she's looking for a killer yet, but she is looking for one. She won't get a good look at him in the Wallace house, nor at first in the Doyle house, but she will unmask him in minute 87, which will be the first time we get to see his face as well. Not actually the first time she has seen Michael's face, of course, but we won't know that for another three years when Halloween 2 comes out. Correction, we of course saw his face in minute 7, when he was 6. Let us return to Carol Clover. Quote, She addresses the monster on his own terms. End quote. End quote. Quote, the final girl is the designated victim, the audience incorporate, the slashing, ripping, and tearing of whose body will cause us to flinch and scream in our seats, but unlike Marion Crane and Psycho, she does not die. End quote. While some might assume the final girl is specifically a pro-woman, feminist ideal, Kyle Christensen argues in The Final Girl vs. Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street, Studies in Popular Culture, Fall 2011, quote, Lori often seems to reflect the core characteristics of Barbara Welter's oppressive cult of the true womanhood, which restricted the actions of many women during the 19th century. 
the four cardinal virtues of a true woman were purity, piety, submissiveness, and domesticity. These old-fashioned criteria of womanhood, propagated by many women's magazines, gift annuals, and religious literature of the time period, were the qualities by which a woman judged herself and was judged by her husband, her neighbors, and society. The influence of true womanhood is present in many of Laurie's behaviors. Laurie is extremely pure and virginal, as shown in a scene in which her best friend Annie informs a male acquaintance that Laurie has a crush on him, causing Laurie to become embarrassed to the point of even seeming fearful of men. Although not quite religious in her piety, Laurie is very much concerned about appearing upstanding and moral in the eyes of, parenthetically, male authority figures. She is reluctant to smoke pot illegally with Annie, and when she does, it is followed by guilt-induced worry that Annie's father, a local police officer, can smell the marijuana on them. The man of the law becomes the substitute for the man of God. Laurie is submissive to both her constantly rude and obnoxious friends, but also to her father, whose only scene is of his shouting orders at Laurie as she leaves for school. Lastly, and most profoundly, Laurie is domesticated, using babysitting, thus surrogate motherhood, as her chief means of disposable income. The American film industry of the late teens and early 1920s sought to reverse the effects of true womanhood by producing films brimming with over-sexualization, marital mishaps, and tolerant depictions of fallen women to parody its tenets. True womanhood, however, has continued to miraculously exist in many of the ostensibly pro-woman final girls, including Laurie Strode, which past critics have mistaken as being feminist. End quote. There are plenty of things to nitpick in there, of course. I wouldn't call Laurie extremely pure and virginal. I wouldn't say that she is embarrassed to the point of even seeming fearful of men. Not wanting to get caught doing something illegal by your friend's father who is a sheriff doesn't suggest that she needs to be appearing upstanding and moral, so much as not getting arrested or in trouble. Very different levels there. She's not that submissive to her friends. They're just louder than she is. And her father's scene is not him shouting orders at her. He is only raising his voice because she is literally walking away from him. Still, some of the points stand. The surrogate motherhood is a common trope of slasher films, of final girls. And Laurie is definitely domestic. We will return to more of the final girls, specifically in relation to sex and gender, in a later minute. That is all for Minute 73. Michael Myers Minute is a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find more content at lemmingdrops.com. You can stalk me on Twitter and Facebook at Myers Minute or Instagram, Michael Myers Minute. Or join our Facebook listeners group, 45 Lampkin Lane. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review if you like what you hear. And if you really like what you hear, you can help me out by donating through Patreon at patreon.com slash Minute and join the Thorn Cult. Until next time. See you later. Bye.